News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today and for the rest of the week. Well, we know that there are testing requirements and vaccine requirements when traveling, but Point Roberts and the Chamber of Commerce in Point Roberts is putting an ad in a local paper saying, Canada, we've missed you. It's encouraging people to come back to Point Roberts. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Good morning to you. Hey, Jill. Good morning to you. What what are you hoping or what are you telling people about visiting Point Roberts? Well, after 20 months of uh, putting our case forward to both governments, federally and anyone else who would listen, uh, we got the Canadian government to recognize that this exclave and the other three across Canada, uh, Hyder, Alaska, Campobello Island, and Northwest Angle in Minnesota, Manitoba connection over there, um, all, f- all f- uh, four of us uh, total about 3,000 people in total, all four. So we're not that big and significant uh, in, in, the, in a North American sense. But with our uniqueness comes benefits, uh, plus and minus. And some of the minus is when you close the border, we're isolated. I mean, really isolated. As you know, you've been here several times in the past, and, and we're three sides water and Delta, basically. And that's how you get here by land is through Delta, British Columbia, or you don't get here. And so we're making the argument that we're more like Delta than we are Arkansas or Georgia. And we uh, discipline ourselves health-wise um, and community-wise, like Delta does. And we have similar vaccination rates. And we started them very, very early, right at the beginning in February, uh, when they were available a year ago. Uh, that's when our fire chief, Carlton, started us out. And he's got us at 88% vaccinated now. And he's doing the children next week here. Um, so he's leading edge. So we're a minimal threat to anybody and would make the argument that statistically, if you went from Delta to our international shopping center, which we'd love you to do here, um, or vice versa, if someone here went to Thrifties in Delta, the same uh, percentage of risk prevails. In other words, it doesn't matter that the border's there, other than it's a damned inconvenience for all of us. Uh, both sides of the border, because 75% of our properties here are owned by Canadians, and they can't get access. Well, historically, in the past, they haven't been able to get access to them for 20 months. Right. So finally, the government has, uh, Canada, thankfully, uh, recognized us in actual legislation and said, well, yes, here are the rules for crossing the border for everybody, and they've made an exception for Point Roberts and said... The Canadians coming to Point Roberts can go back at any time and come in for an hour, come in for a week, and the requirement is not for another COVID test. You're double vaxxed, uh, and you have to do the arrive can, of course, which, if you're used to it, takes about five minutes, and to enter back. So once you go back, they've got you in the computer, 
you're on arrive count, it shows you're vaccinated, and you're welcome back home without having to quarantine for 14 days. Right. So you want to remind people or make sure people know that even if you still, if you're a fully vaccinated Canadian and you want to take a quick trip to Point Roberts, you can do so and you don't have to take that PCR test to go back home. That's that's right. And as we've talked about before, 2018 and 19, we did 1.5 million visits through that border, individuals. 1.5 million. And 55% were less than a day. So an hour, pick up parcels, go check your house, uh, get gas, go to the marketplace, etc. So that's 800,000 people. And if you had to wait the three days, like, to get tested here, we do it Wednesday and Sunday at the fire hall. And uh, then it takes a day to go to Bellingham and come back, and then you get it. And you, you can then go back home. Well, that cancels all our day trips. Plus, it's $160 U.S. And so that's only for long-term stays. So we're missing uh, over half our market. And that's devastating to our economy. And are services still open as far as if people are coming down there uh, to pick up parcels or to go get gas and that kind of thing? Are the services all still open? Uh, the parcel posts are, I would check, but I know that three of them are open, uh, a, bit, a bit limited hours, but definitely, you know, get there at least six hours through the day. The ga- gas stations, a couple of them are attended with personnel, and others are card lock, so if you use your card, you can self-serve. Um, the uh, restaurants, no. Uh, weekends, it has been, but subject to this weather now, uh, the, the marina uh, restaurant's been open on the weekends, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Other than that, um, it's been limited hours. Of course, the uh, golf course closed. <laughs> You'd need different colored balls to play today, even if you went <laughs> out. But um, yeah, so we, we need them back. I mean, the minute the people come back, they'll open. I mean, they're in business, and in business, uh, you serve the customer, and what we need the customer. That's the missing link here, the woman. Yeah, I would imagine. A bit of a, a cheeky idea, but have you considered, or any of the businesses considered, selling rapid tests? And I know there are a lot of British Columbians that would happily pop down to purchase those because you can't get them here. Well, yeah, as if, if the key is does the customs accept them? Does Health Canada accept them? And, um, you know, that would certainly be an idea that we would pursue if the Canadian government says, yes, we'll accept them. But right now, if your double back's coming in, which you have to be at the American border, going back, you don't need the rapid test. So the key is doing the arrive count. Right. No, I I was just suggesting the ones that you can buy and take home. There are so many people here that would love to be able to purchase those, say, go to a a grocery store or a pharmacy and purchase those. If there was an option of doing that, you might that might be an incentive for people or or might be uh, something that people would want to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just make sure that uh, the government accepts it. (laughs) Unless it's just for your own personal knowledge, you know, know, because some of the rules are, are uh, a little bit heavy as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we offered year, months ago on your show, uh, six months ago, uh, 
to put a rapid test station mobile with the fire chief here um, at the border. And it was an Abbott Labs uh, unit, cost about $15,000, gives you results in five minutes. And uh, we were turned down, and we said, we'll fund it, we'll run it. Oh, well, it's only 97% accurate. Mm-hmm. Well, come on. As opposed to doing nothing, you're 97%. Would you rather have zero or $97? Like, <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty obvious to me what one should do. And they wouldn't let us do it. Yeah. All right. Well, Brian, we'll have to leave it there for today, but I do appreciate you coming back on the show. Thank you so much for doing this. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much, Canada. We've missed you. (laughs) All right. That is Brian Calder. He is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. And again, they are putting an ad. It's going to come out in a local paper on this side of the border tomorrow saying, please come back. No COVID PCR test required for fully vaccinated Canadians returning to Canada after visiting Point Roberts. Even for those short trips, well, it does have the exemption when it comes to the testing. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here's what the polar bear swim in English Bay sounded like. Some of the voices in 2019. The trick is don't think anything. Just do it. It's fun. It makes you feel alive. It's a great way to start the year. Really, it's about a clean slate. Start the new year, you know, wash off whatever I did last year. I think it energizes you. It gives you health. It gives you passion. And I feel great. Some of the voices just before many, many people took the plunge into the cool waters of English Bay. Well, a lot of people, I'm sure, were also hoping to do that this year, but it has been postponed. That event will not be taking place like several polar bear swims. Joining us now to talk more about this is Lisa Pantages, the president of the Vancouver Polar Bear Swim. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, sad news for many I know who were hoping to start the new year with that icy dip. Why was the decision made to not go ahead with the event? Well, as with many things this year, uh, for the health and safety of our community, we just felt that um, with the Omicron variant, it uh, wasn't a great idea, even though we're outside to gather so many people together, because it is such a fun huge event that people have been attending that um, we just wanted to keep our community safe. Yeah, which which I think people understand. It it makes sense. Still still upsetting, though, I know, because a lot of people have responded to to this going, but, you know, it's an outdoor event. People could distance and thinking that there might have been a way uh, to still do so and be safe. Well, you know, uh, I, I, we really, it was a really tough decision to make. And we're certainly not trying to kill anybody's tradition. Um, but uh, we just felt uh, it does turn into such a large group gathering that um, it was best to just um, keep it a little bit quieter and more personal this year. <laughs> so when you say that, uh, I know that the official word is that we've moved the event online instead of the big in-person celebration at English Bay. Obvious question here, how do you do a polar bear swim online? Well, we actually were able to do it quite successfully last year where people can come up with, uh, they can put all their passion and enthusiasm and creativity into their own kind of private swim. We're encouraging people to do it close to home. Last year we had, well, I'll be, I'll be swimming in my fish pond. I'll be doing my dip. It'll be my 60th polar bear swim. Um, and we had people doing it in bathtubs. We had people 
jumping into giant uh, kiddie pools. We, you know, whatever anybody creatively wants to come up to, we encourage it, and then they'll be able to upload it on uh, the part on uh, the Vancouver.ca website. Interesting. All right. I would imagine there will be people as well, because throughout this pandemic, people have still been swimming in the ocean. It seems like a lot more people have kind of embraced this whole cold water swimming tradition. So I would imagine there will still be people who maybe take that dip at a beach, but do so by themselves or with a friend, not in a big group. Yes. Um, And and as there were last year, but some... And there will be, of course, lifeguards uh, standing by at English Bay, but we're just encouraging people to do it in their own way, closer to home, um, and to still have a great time with it. And, and we look forward to being able to all being together again next year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. Uh, can you talk about, you just mentioned, I think you said it was going to be your 60th, the dip, but I know the, the history goes back farther than that. What is it you think that keeps people like yourself and others getting interested in people doing this? Well, the voices you played earlier kind of say it all. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of fun. It is like a fresh way to start the new year, wash off the last year. Um, but I think the core of it really is the tradition. It's, it's, there's generations and generations of families uh, that come down every year. Uh, my Personally, in my family, uh, we've had up to four generations going in at the same time. Um, this year, I would have had three. And it's... I, I think there's just something quite magical about that, that people are really proud of, that they have a tradition. How long do you stay in the water when you go in? Well, I, uh, I usually, <laughs> I'm usually in uh, several times, overall, in and out, over the course of about 45 minutes, I probably do about 10 swims. And dips. <laughs> I'm more a dipper. Right. right okay. And what is, the, <laughs> what is the water temperature right now? Well, I'm not sure exactly what it is right now, but it is going to be a lot cooler this year, especially as they are expecting snow on uh, New Year's Day and probably around minus five or six degree temperatures. So we really are cautioning people to uh, really take care, make sure they've got lots of layers if they are going in the ocean, make sure that you get into your clothes right away and most importantly, wear something on your feet because they are going to get very cold very fast. Um, we're probably looking at about two degree water temperature, we're guessing, um, which uh, generally the temperature is six or seven degrees, but every, te- every degree that it goes down, it really makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, two, two degrees is pretty, pretty cool to be swimming in. Uh, all right, mm-hmm. uh, Lisa, great advice for people. And obviously, if you're doing the online, you don't have to put your bathtub at two degrees. You can put it or find a pond <laughs> that's, that's more suitable for you. Uh, hopefully, people will do that and will really embrace the online. And like you said, we hope to be back and back in person next year. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us, though, to get the word out for people. Thanks so much for having me. All right, that is Lisa Pantages, the president of the Vancouver Polar Bear Swim. Again, the in-person event has been cancelled this year, going more to an online version. And if you're we're planning on that one or a different polar bear swim in your community, make sure you check first because a lot of other events are following the same route, going online, and they will not be happening in person, at least not in huge groups this year. So there you have it, another event that will not be taking place this year. Well, I suppose it's next year. We're talking about January 1st, but still, you get the idea. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Thanks for being with us. So, well, as you've been hearing on the news, the union representing about 46,000 teachers in this province is calling on the province to delay the return to classrooms, that to give teachers a bit more breathing space and students and families, as well as giving priority access to booster shots for all school staff. Joining us to talk more about this is Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. What would you like specifically then as far as with the return to school just a few days away, what would you like to see? Well, there needs to be some time for planning. Um, You know, we're going to hear the Ministry Steering Committee has been working around some of the additional safety features that need to be in schools. uh, And there needs to be some planning for that. You know, we're really concerned about what's going to happen And we've been told this is a new pandemic, and it certainly seems like it is. We've also been told that schools are reflective of communities. And what we're seeing right now in communities is Omicron, the virus, um, really running through many communities very, very quickly. And so we are concerned that without adequate planning, and even, frankly, with adequate planning, it's going to be a very difficult January for sure. Um, but there does need to be some time given for schools to make some arrangements to increase those safety factors, uh, features. Uh, is it your impression or do you know then has there been any planning taking place given that the, the winter break has been underway? And I think a lot of parents and others would have thought that planning started before, if not at the beginning of the winter break. Well, the education partners in the ministry uh, have actually been meeting throughout the break. Uh, and as we know, this is fast moving. In other words, um, things are changing fairly rapidly. The numbers are staying really high. We're now seeing that, you know, there isn't real access to testing for everyone. Uh, Folks are being told if you have symptoms, assume you have COVID and isolate. Um, There, you know, so there is, uh, we're in a situation where uh, contact tracing has been overwhelmed. Uh, and so, you know, things have really changed with the Omicron uh, variant, and it seems like they will continue to change. And so it, there has been a need for planning to happen during the break, and that is happening, and it needs to continue as well. Uh, what we've heard so far from the education ministry is that there will be enhanced safety protocols and that school will go back to in-person learning in the new year with those enhanced safety measures. Are there measures, I mean, do you know what those are or are there measures that would make teachers feel more comfortable about going back to in-person learning right away? Well, the discussions uh, so far have been, you know, really a lot of the safety measures that were in place last year. Um, But we think there needs to be even more than that done right now. Um, We think that N95 masks need to be available. We know how transmissible this virus is. It's very much more transmissible than the Delta variant. And, you know, we're not hearing that children don't get um, Omicron uh, as readily as adults anymore. I mean, it seems like everyone's getting this virus. Uh, So we need to see that. And also about half the districts in the province don't have adequate ventilation. In other words, they don't have MERV-13 filtration, which is the minimum according to the health and safety uh, standards. And so we'd like to see uh, mitigations put in place. Um, and, you know, frankly, teachers cannot be told to open windows when it's, we're in record cold temperatures as well. And so, you know, priority for booster shots, um, that would certainly be helpful. We know that people that are fully vaccinated and that's 96% of teachers are still getting Omicron and are still exhibiting symptoms. So we're pretty concerned 
that there's going to be a lot of uh, students and staff that will have symptoms. That daily health check will be very vital. Um, and we're concerned that we're going to see quite a number of school closures because of lack of, uh, of staff. And so, you know, so far this year, we've seen more with the Delta variant than we did uh, with the original COVID-19. We're concerned that, you know, throughout January, we're going to see quite a number of school closures. What about bringing in rapid testing for school staff and having that part of the safety protocols? Has there been discussion of that? There has been. It sounds like there's a willingness to do that. How it's going to play out in schools and whether there's going to be enough rapid tests, you know, those are really the critical questions. And so, you know, that, that is something that is under discussion. That's part of the reason why there needs to be additional time before students attend uh, school uh, in January, because those details, uh, especially around rapid testing, for example, prioritizing around booster shots, those details have not been worked out yet. What would you say, though, to parents who understand all of what you just said and understand the concerns about this variant of the virus spreading much more rapidly, but then to to say, okay, but in just a few days, your kids are going to go back to an online learning model. There would be a lot of parents in that scenario who are going to be scrambling and not able to figure out, well, how am am I going to work? How am I going to go back to doing this? And, And that in itself is going to be a huge stressor as well. Absolutely. And, and nobody wants to be in this situation. Uh, and certainly not us. We haven't been advocating for online learning, but we're in a different situation right now. And that's why we're encouraging the ministry to make the, you know, to make the decision, make the announcements early on so that families have some time. You know, if we're in a scenario where schools have to close because of uh, lack of staffing, there's not going to be much, much notice of that. And that's what we want to avoid. And so we think that there needs to be planning at the beginning of January. We're, we're hoping to avoid, you know, kind of rolling school closures, but that's a big concern of ours. And so, you know, at the beginning of this pandemic where everyone went online, um, we were able to uh, support vulnerable students at school. And we can still do that. There'll, there'll still be, you know, uh, folks at schools um, in that scenario. It certainly did happen at the beginning of the pandemic. And, uh, and so, you know, that there is some support there for vulnerable students, disabled students. Um, that happened, at, you know, like I say, last time. Um, but, you know, we're in a situation where it's very unpredictable and we're seeing, you know, a lot of, as Dr. Henry said, ex- explosion of the virus in different communities. And so, you know, we need to make sure that schools have, or have plans in place. And that's going to take some time. So would you envision it then being kind of a hybrid model? Like you said, there would still be supports there for for vulnerable students to be at the school. Would it be a scenario, do you think, where parents would be given the choice on whether or not they're going to take their children to an online learning or they're going to continue sending their children to school? No, last time there were, um, you know, certain uh, groups of students, like I say, vulnerable students, uh, disabled students, students with disabilities that, you know, were able to come in. Um, but the hybrid model did not work because teachers had to do both in-class learning and remote learning. And that did not work. That, you know, dramatically increased teacher workload. And no one was satisfied in that scenario. Families, you know, that had uh, students learning online felt like they didn't get enough time. And they didn't. That's true because teachers are doing two jobs. 
And so that is not a workable situation. Would it change things, and you mentioned boosters and being prioritized, would it change things then as far as the comfort level of teachers if they were prioritized for booster shots? It absolutely would. Um, As we say, we're in a different pandemic. Even fully vaccinated folks who have had two shots, as the vast majority of teachers have, um, you know, are still getting symptoms and still won't be able to attend work if they um, have symptoms. And so the booster shot seems like a, a reasonable approach. Health workers are prioritized. Last time around, when we were at the very beginning of, of getting vaccinations, uh, all like online, um, I should say, frontline workers were prioritized, including teachers. So we'd like to see that play out again. When would you like to have an answer? My guess is as soon as possible, but when are are you hoping and when can parents anticipate that they'll have an answer for this or have a better idea on what things are going to look like? Because I would imagine at this point, parents are continuing on, given that the Ministry of Education has said online learning is going to return on the 10th. When do you hope to have actual a concrete plan in place or an announcement on that? Well, we, um, you know, expect there to be an announcement in the next, you know, today or tomorrow. Um, and, you know, we, we have certainly been uh, encouraging those announcements to happen as soon as possible. As we say, everyone needs notice. Uh, families need notice. Um, teachers and, and support staff need notice. Um, you know, so the, more, the earlier information can be shared, the better. All right. Well, we I know that uh, there will likely be questions about this during today's briefing as well. So we will stay tuned to that. Terry Mooring, thank you so much for taking the time for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Joe. That is Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Again, the federation calling for a delay in the online going fully, sorry, going full, full on into in-person learning. Give me your thoughts on this as well. If you're a parent with kids in the school system, what are your thoughts on what things are going to look like in January? 604-331-BUZZ. You can email me as well, jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. As you've likely heard on the news, BC Health officials reporting another 1,785 cases of COVID-19 on Tuesday. The bulk of the cases in the Fraser Health region of the province, then going to Vancouver Coastal Health and the Interior and in Northern Health. Health And the province saying that these numbers are preliminary. We are going to have that live update at 3 p.m. this afternoon, which we will be carrying live here on the program. Right now, though, let's check in with Sarah Otto, professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. What are your thoughts on the numbers, so what we're seeing, and any idea what we should be bracing for? You know, the numbers are so hard to interpret right now. First, they're preliminary, but second, we know a lot has changed. The recommendations for going in to get tested changed on Friday, where if you were young or if you had really mild symptoms, you were being asked not to go and take a spot in line uh, and save those spots, um, the testing, the PCR testing for those who were um, vulnerable um, or were having more severe symptoms. So that changed. In addition, it was a holiday. It was really cold. The lines were super long. And so we know a lot of people didn't go to get tested. So 1,700. The models predict we um, should be at around 3,500 to 4,000 if we didn't bend down the curve. Now, we might have bent down the curve that substantially, 
But um, it's also more likely that we're just underreporting. And looking at those numbers, and if they are closer to what the models would predict, what does that mean as far as what are we learning about this variant given the rates of hospitalization and how many people are in hospital? Yeah, so... um, you know, the hospitalization, is it lags, and that makes it really hard to estimate. In addition, in many places, uh, the people that are most vulnerable tend to be younger, the people that have to work outside of the home, and they tend to not need hospitalization that much. And so in the Britain, even though the hospitalization rates have took a while to rise, they're rising now, um, and that's um, because the first initial susceptible population tends to be younger and healthier. All right. I heard you say something yesterday that I thought was interesting, and I know others have been commenting on it. I was hoping you could expand a bit on the idea, and I get that it's still very early and we're learning about this, but the idea of if you are vaccinated, but you also have, you contract COVID and you contract the Omicron variant, that might actually give you the best protection. That's right. We are finding elsewhere that the best protection comes from this kind of combination of a full dose of vaccines and prior infection. And so that that uh, we don't have the data yet on that being true for Omicron, but I think it would be um, very, it will lead to very robust immunity because Omicron is so much different. It gives our, trains our immune system on now a quite different form of the virus, form of the um, spike protein. So I think that will lead to substantial breadth and robustness of our immune responses. But we have to get there. We have to um, get through this Omicron wave. And with hospitals already stretched and so many people getting COVID so quickly, I just fear for the next few weeks. Right. So the next few weeks, then, when you say kind of fear for that, what should we be bracing for, do you think, for the month of January? Well, with, with Omicron just so transmittable, we're, um, the problem is it's like a pileup on the highway. If everybody gets a case at the same time, there's just that much more demand on emergency services and hospitalization. And so it's that pileup that is the worry. Um, and that, that can mean not getting the best possible medical care for those people that do need it with Omicron. So even though, like you said, and what we're seeing in Britain and what we're seeing in other countries, too early to know 100% or or to know that even if we see this widespread transmission of the virus, trying to figure out exactly what that means when it comes to hospitalization and the potential of overwhelming hospitals? Yeah, you know, the latest data from the UK suggests that if you are unvaccinated, there's a slightly less chance, smaller chance of needing hospital, but it's not that much smaller. It's like a 26% chance less of needing hospitalization. And so if you're just having a lot of people getting Omicron at the same time, that's a minor difference to the health, to the demand on hospitalizations if, you, if just so many people get Omicron at once. Now there's, but there's more uncertainty. There's preliminary data suggesting that the amount of time needed to spend be spent in hospital is smaller too. The number of people on ventilators is smaller too, and so the so the full impact on hospitalizations may may be um, even less than what that 26 percent number suggests. 
All right. You mentioned as well uh, the idea of of perhaps having the virus, but also being fully do- fully vaccinated. Uh, when we talk about being fully vaccinated in in your modeling, are we still talking about two doses, or are you talking about people okay. who've had two doses and, and the booster? Well, they're very different biologically. People in British Columbia who have only two doses, most of us got our second dose um, last summer, so months ago, and. With Delta, that would have protected us through the, through six months. But with Omicron, we're finding that the Omicron is substantial enough that you really need a lot of antibodies in your bloodstream to recognize that virus and gum it up and prevent it from entering our cells. And so after three months, after 15 weeks, we're really seeing plummeting protection in terms of those antibodies pre- preventing infection in the first place. And so as far as getting infected with Omicron, most of BC is, does not have enough protection. We only have, I think, about 18% of adults um, boosted. Those 18% who are recently boosted have much higher protection. I should also say that those, I would predict, but it's hard to, we don't have data, that, the, that children who are recently vaccinated should also be reasonably well protected because their antibodies are still circulating at high rates. Uh, we've seen some other countries lower the isolation period as well from, I think mm-hmm. it was from 10 days to five days. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I, um, there were a lot of pressure. There was a lot of economic pressure to do that. And so it's, it's not clear. I know we know of cases where after five days post symptom, you still have symptoms and still have viral shedding. So one recommendation that I saw was it could be shorter, but it should be combined with a rapid antigen test to just make sure that the viral loads are down enough to go back. Um, and that was so the U.S. recently went to five days after um, testing with a confirmed positive test. Right. Okay. And just one other question. You mentioned the rapid antigen testing. Uh, This is something that the Teachers Federation is talking about. They're saying it might not be the best idea to go back to in-person learning at this point. Would that be a game changer as far as actually figuring out the numbers and and being able to get a hold on this? Rapid antigen tests are great because they can catch people who are asymptomatic or who um, are who don't yet have the symptoms that they will come to have pre-symptomatic we call it so but we'd have to ramp them up and i'm not and i'm not sure that bc has the supplies right at the moment to get one into the hand of every student but if you if they did then you could test at the beginning of every day and um, just help um, catch those students that don't even know they have it but are carrying omicron All right. And one uh, final question. What will you be looking for or what do you think is the most important information we're going to get out of the briefing today? Well, it'll be interesting to see if there are updates. Um, Those were preliminary numbers that we've received so far this week and to see whether or not those numbers are um, rise um, dramatically. But again, I'm, what I'm hoping to hear soon is that they'll also be releasing information about the number of people that tested positive on the rapid antigen test and did not get PCR confirmation because those are, that's closer to um, the full story. All right. Uh, Sarah Otto, always great to have you on the show and breaking down the numbers for us. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jill. Sarah Otto is a professor and mathematical biologist at the University of British Columbia. And thanks again so much for doing that.